Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and today we're going to hear someone tell us that we got it wrong. I'm sorry, that's news? <laughs> Aren't None. you married? <laughs> <laughs> that is definitely not news. Actually, this is coming from one of our favorite winemakers. That's Mark McKenna, who just piped in. Good to be back. I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Today we'll look at some of these overwatt wine and winery descriptions, like minerality, artisan, and seriously ganache. We'll hear about what we did wrong. We have questions from listeners asking about wine lists and scary sommeliers. We'll tell you whether red or white is worse for your teeth. And as usual, we'll make fun of wine snobs. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. And today we're going to hear how maybe we got it wrong on some wine descriptions. No, Rick, you and I both know we never get anything wrong. Actually, we get pretty much everything wrong. But uh, but this one, this is about one of your rants, my friend. Oh, good. You know, oh. you know how you love your rants. I love my rants. And among your rants is a vagueness of the word minerality. Fr- I can quote you any number of wine writers around the planet who have said they don't know what it means, but they find it really valuable. Now, I'm sorry. Words... Should words, be used with a purpose. Words are supposed to mean something. I and agree. when they say, I don't know what it means, but I use it, I'm thinking, I call BS. So, Not all right. Well, right, hang on. Here. Let me introduce you oh, officially. <laughs> just, you know, before you guys start beating each other up here, uh, I need to introduce our friend and winemaker, Mark McKenna. He's a winemaker and GM at Skoda Family Cellars. And we like Mark. Uh, but he disagrees with you. Oh, you're Paul. the one. Yeah. <laughs> he disagrees with you. So, uh, so give me your best shot. Well, I, no, I agree with you that words should not be used without purpose. But I think that in all wine writing, words are merely evocative. Uh, a Zinfandel that's, you know, taste of raspberry doesn't actually taste like raspberry, want, uh, except I, on I, a very rare occasion. I want to get that in writing. That <laughs> in wine writing, when it says tastes like raspberry, it doesn't taste no, like all raspberry. These, yeah. All these words are echoes of an experience, Mark, echoes of a feeling. You're the guy who says we have made consumers afraid of wine and intimidated about yeah. wine, and now you're telling them that when I say the wine tastes like raspberry, what I'm really saying is wine doesn't actually taste like Just raspberry. Just like college chemistry, we're lying to you all the time. So I will define what minerality is to me as an experience. If you've ever been hiking in the Sierras, the I experience that comes back to to me is is Yosemite on kind of a warm evening and the rain comes down after it hasn't been raining for a while. And that smell, and I know this seems a little obscure, a little obtuse, but that smell that comes when that water hits granite and you get that combination of earth and the pine. And to me, it's a very upcountry, backwoods kind of smell. And wines like that trigger in me, something very similar experience. Mm-hmm. It, it, something very fundamental. That's Bef- poetry. Po- well, that is poetry. And before you start smacking each other upside the head, yeah. um, let me say two things. I would prefer that description any day. Sure. Because it, it brings me to a place. It tells me something. It actually tells me about, about what the wine tastes. It also it tells like, you about the person writing the description. But, which I, is and that's I, what I was going well, to go to is you can get, you know, there are people using crutches all the time because they're, they're using words that other people are using. Just like in a previous show we had, we talked about people making wines that other people are making. Right. There's no creativity there. And, you know, we let five people define what we should drink for 20 years. 
maybe we're you know taking well, our own medicine at this the, point. The reason I rant about minerality is when you look it up in the dictionary, there's no definition, yeah. and yet everybody keeps using it because well, somebody thinks it means something. And even in your definition, Mark, it really wasn't the minerality so much that you were talking about. You were talking about the the wet stones and the moisture of the earth. And the pine. And the there pine. Was, those are all those actually are more really, distinct smells and flavors. Cool smells. And that's, that's, that is... They've got some spice to them. Yeah. You know? They've got almost a little bit of like a carbonation it's, sense to them. And to me, that's what it is. It's an interplay probably between pH... And, and TA. Okay, now I'm lost. You know, we have a we oh, have, you are we, far we from have lost. a rule here on the show. We don't actually use facts oh, okay. or scientific <laughs> terms. No, actually, we're uh, no. And and you're right. I, but but it is what we talk. So we're talking about in this notion of using minerality. What I would rather somebody say, which you do on occasion, say wet stones or right. or I smell seashells right. or well, and it's or, a yeah. code word for acidity. Because acidity well, has become a bad one. word. Yeah. You don't, you know, any PR professional will tell you not to use the word In acidity fact, not, when describing just, wine. It's not just PR professionals. I think we talked about this. There's a there's a recent study that says if your wine label says crisp or acidity on it, the wine will sell for a lower price. Crisp. People don't even like crisp. it. Crisp. Yep. Crisp. Even That's crisp. interesting. You need to go back and change all your labels. <laughs> That's always true, according to PR professionals <laughs> as well. And, and for what it's worth, fresh didn't work either. Fresh didn't work either. Nope. Oh. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, yeah, it's, I think, I'm not sure what they like. Um, yeah, well, I, I think for a while, salted there seemed caramel, to be a I think, book of words to... that, you know, required to, to, to discuss a wine. If you went outside that book, I mean, That's why, right. why not we talk are... about it as music or harmony or, or painting or colors or any number of things? Yeah. Uh, well, well, we're going to talk about that book of words that you're required to yeah. use, by the way, in just a second. But I want to stay on minerality. And here's why I want to stay on minerality because mark you don't know this as well as paul does i love me my studies <laughs> yes oh good i found we me another one no. i found me another one this is from lincoln university in christchurch new zealand and the university of burgundy in Dijon in france yes all right recent study very recent study this was published in <laughs> these are the things where yeah. i find these the journal of food quality and preference oh excuse me that's the name of the journal it's the journal of the european sensory science society Lord help us. They actually looked at all kinds of things from our, the organic foods to insects. Anyway, here's the study. 32 wine pros in France, 31 in New Zealand. Blind tasted 100% Sauvignon Blancs, 8 from France, 8 from New Zealand. This is how they tasted them. They tasted them with and without nose plugs. Frankly, that's a little extreme if you ask me, <laughs> nonetheless. And what they were trying to they were trying to identify if cultural influence was part of this as well. So they went through the wines three times, once to just rate the wines, one to ten. Next time was to describe them once with the nose clips, once without the nose clips. Okay, both groups perceive minerality in the same wines with quote-unquote remarkable consistency. What does that mean? Whether tasting or smelling, which is they both they both picked at the same time they all said minerality they, they and that they all liked minerality. Now, having said so, this is all the things that this gets to what you guys were both saying. Yeah. The, the and the French like minerality a little bit more. The Kiwis actually rated fruit minerality about the same. Right. But they all but they rated the wines the same on the same scale. They basically all got the same numbers when the wines were high in minerality, and they all picked minerality. Did, did on they the same try wines. putting red food coloring in these wines? Right. Because they would well, have found out something entirely different. Probably. Yeah. Well, instead of nose plugs, they should use eye plugs. <laughs> but having said that. It still speaks to my complaint, and actually really your guys' as, as well, which is that, but minerality could still be wet stones. It could be the, the earthiness. It, yeah. could be, it could be metal, metallic. It's, it's fine and, that we have a word that eight winemakers in New Zealand can use to talk to eight winemakers in France. Right. The problem is what word do we use to the people listening to our show, well, the, right. eight, the eight people who listen to our show? Well, you know what it is? It's not fruit. 
Not earth, not wood. Something else. It's uh, sorry. <laughs> it, it's a liveliness. Sorry. It's I mean. Well, but I'm sh- saying it's all... champ- champagne is almost the definition of I... it when it when it tends towards a slight yeastiness, but it still has the liveliness. Yes, of yes it. but I just want I want a specific word that that it, it, it evokes something like your description that I can taste. When somebody says like they do often on the minerality quote unquote in an Albarino is that you can taste the seashells. You know then that yes. that is something that that I am down yep. with. Even if it tastes like a spoon, I got that. Diamonds, yeah. diamonds are minerals, and they get your attention. And to me, that's what minerality does in wine. It's it's a wine that gets your attention. What do diamonds taste like, by the way? Uh, they're, they Very taste sharp. like cash. <laughs> <laughs> that's my full experience. Well, that's the debate, and it's, it's an interesting debate. And but you, now I want to go back to what you were talking about before. That there are these handful of words. Here's where you gentlemen are going to agree. One of our favorite and one of Paul's other giant rants is the phrase "handcrafted." Yeah, every winemaker I know uses their hands at some point have you in ever, the day. Have you ever met a machine-made wine? I, I pretty close. <laughs> pretty close. Bob, Bob Trincaro, one of Bob Trincaro's great quotes uh, of Sutter Home was um, in reference to Sutter Home White's Inn. He said, "The only problem with it is we still need grapes to make it." <laughs> and th- there will be, there will come a time when you know wines are probably going to be contrived. Now, handcrafted. Hmm. Uh, it's become one of those words that when you're sitting there writing tasting notes or back label, yep. it's just real easy. I mean, we used to yep. joke that, you know, we, there should just be one back label now. That's right. Family owned, handcrafted, artisanal, yep. gravity fed, selected vineyards, family owned. Yep. Then, then we, we can yep. be done with it. And we're done. We'll yep. put a kangaroo you know on the what? front hey, with let's, kissing a puppy. Let's write it. Let's write it. Oh, I'd buy that Copyright it. I would Copyright totally buy that And we're done. And yeah. Charge wineries a buck a person, yeah. a, bu- a buck a label to use it, and we're home free. <laughs> yeah. 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 To, to me, to, to, from the winemaker's perspective, it, it's kind of a sad word in a sense in uh-huh. that there were people who they gave their heart and soul to make these wines. I think of some of these wineries in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, and yeah. they're, they're still out there. Oh, sure. But people are now getting into the wine business for a whole lot of other reasons than love of wine or well, love of earth or love of work. Well, yeah. here, here's the other... Uh, and that's dangerous. The other piece to exactly what you're saying is that those folks that are still out there and, and making the stuff that they like and it's, you know, 500 cases or 1,500 cases or whatever it is, they can't differentiate themselves in, in what they put on their label or in talking about sure themselves. They can. well, sure they can. They can't say... They uh, do it all the time. Well they, well, they can once you get to know them and once you see them. I'm yeah. just saying they don't, they don't have a phrase that says, we are a family-owned they, the, wine, No, the so enemy. We, you, know, you, yeah. you want to know the alarm bell? Is anyone who fell in love with the wine lifestyle? Yeah, the yeah. wine lifestyle is the biggest enemy to great wine that we have going in California right now because <laughs> the wine lifestyle is exhausting, and <laughs> it is a full commitment. And yeah, you occasionally have dinner with friends under a tree next to a creek, but not as often as you see when you're trying to sell Chardonnay in Sunset Magazine. Wait, yeah, I was gonna say uh, you shouldn't say that out loud because actually, as you know, Paul is also among other things a marketing professional. <laughs> and in fact, he and I met years ago at a uh, at uh, I think it was either Premier Napa Valley or Something Napa like Valley that. auction yeah. at an event, and we were talking with uh, another winemaker, and we were saying that that this this kind of event where you know walking around gracefully drinking lovely oh, yeah. wines, eating lovely foods, eating beautiful canapes, yes, is is what what everybody in the wine industry wants. Everybody who's not in the wine industry to think what everybody in the wine industry does. You know what? <laughs> there is a definition of handcrafted, and this is real. When you're at a tasting, when you're at a tasting room, whatever your interaction is with the core, you know, world of wine. Look at the winemaker's hands. That will tell you mm-hmm. whether or not a wine is handcrafted. 
I met Gina Gallo at an event years ago, and she's an eloquent woman, and she's built a beautiful business. And the most impressive thing was she had grapes under her fingernails. Sure. She had hands that were stained during harvest. Sure. A winemaker who's bringing that to the table can put that on the bottle, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I want you know pictures of their hands on their Facebook page. All right, page. so that's our new. Um, well, I, that's our for, new label. Just a hand. The hand, a little hand. hand. Yeah, yeah. Just it's, the photo it's our of the test. Hands. You know how that uh, some wines, like Riesling, for example, is now has a scale. At least some Rieslings to tell you how sweet it is on the back mm-hmm. of the yeah. bottle. I think that now we should have a winemaker's a wine winemaker's hand scale. So oh, and, and, how, and, how blue, it, and how then blue. if you were making if you were making a lighter style wine, well, you could put many hands on the label because many hands make light work. Uh, oh my. Yeah. I thought we did no puns. Yeah. This is, this is a a, supposed really, to be a pun phrase. really, really bad joke. Uh, we, uh, this the is latter. A, another phrase that I know that really gets your goat, Mark, is uh, gravity-fed wineries. Yeah. I mean, An innovation, right? Yeah. So Haven't used one. I mean, the first one we created actually long before history. Without question. I mean, <laughs> gravity-fed, and there are people whose heads will explode because they spent a lot of money and spend a lot of their day walking up and down steps. Um, <laughs> Gravity Fed had some real value um, going back to the 60s, 70s, and probably the early 80s when the equipment was so brutal. It was so brutal. And if you're trying to make something that had any delicacy, the continuous presses well, and some of the stuff we had. I was going to say the 1860s, 70s, and 80s as well. That's when they really needed it. was all buckets, yeah. buddy. Yeah, that's right. Buckets that's and right. hand pumps. That's yeah. when winemakers were thin. <laughs> <laughs> There, um, should, there should be a follow-up. When winemakers were thin and... So, yeah, so we'll what, leave that to the PR professional. So, so what you're saying is it has no impact on the quality of the wine. It certainly has no impact once the wine has become in pure liquid form. So there is value to it when you're in the grape and when you have grapes fresh off the vine. Because the less they're brewed, they're getting the, It depends the on what together. you're trying to make. Right. But if you're trying right. to make something that's very elegant. But the equipment now is so good. I mean, we use pumps... Now that are also used in industries like the egg industry that can literally pump eggs without mm-hmm, breaking mm-hmm, them, mm-hmm. and you're telling me they're going to brutalize. Well, and you grape also have skins? you know the ancient lagarish in in Portugal. They now have them with silicon rubber feet to ah, yeah. simulate human feet to stomp the grapes. Or in Amador, we have people with feet. There you go. <laughs> yeah. See, yeah. are they silicon rubber feet or are they just <laughs> normal feet? Well. Speaking of feet, time to us to uh, walk along to the move along. I was gonna, we're traveling to the next segment. Beat feet. Yes. This is uh, Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Next up, we will take some questions. Mark McKenna, thanks for coming in. Yeah, thanks, my pleasure. Mark. Always a pleasure. And if you're out there listening, stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. It's time to open our mailbag and take questions from listeners. If you'd like to ask us a question that we can answer on the show or anywhere, go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. And don't forget to look for us on iTunes. You can subscribe for free, one little itty-bitty click. Well, we have no longer have any experts in the room. Um, That's so, right. So maybe we should just identify who's left in here. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you about Paul. He actually is something of an expert. He's a respected industry pro. He knows some people. He knows some things. He answers questions on allexperts.com. He teaches all over the place, including things like the Culinary Institute of America, Napa Valley College, and occasionally on a cruise. Uh, so the man, the man is a little bit accomplished, or he was. His reputation is gone now that he hooked up with me. 
And Rick is a New York Times bestselling author, a wine commentator on Capital Public Radio, consults with wineries and restaurants, and thank God Mark's left the room because now we don't have to worry about what we say. I know. Anymore. We don't have to get a rate anymore. you got a winemaker in here, and you got you got <laughs> to be accurate. Heat that stuff. All right. Our first question comes from Gary Cash in Healdsburg. Wine country in Sonoma, huh? We're yes. pulling the, them in. Yes, this is actually pertinent to the question. I was out with my girlfriend's family for the first time, and I think they were trying to be nice because I live in wine country, so they let me pick the wine. I know, like, three wines. I just guessed oh, yeah. it seemed okay. So what should I do when that happens? Any tips for dealing with a giant wine list? Very difficult question for two reasons. One of them is big wine lists. Rick, you and I have talked about this before. Even experts who make fun of people who can't pick a wine in the supermarket when confronted with a 30- or 40-page wine list sometimes feel overwhelmed. So oh, yeah. it's too much, too much to think about there. But the other thing is it's his girlfriend's family, and they're asking him to pick the wine, right? So he's got this awkward situation of, yes, I think we should pick this $4,000 bottle of rare French Burgundy. That's what I would do. I totally, yeah. (laughs) They're paying, you know. (laughs) Exactly. A little large. So there's a little bit of that. The the first rule that I, I always have in picking the wine is to look around the table and, first of all, what are we eating? Because you kind of want the wine to go with what we're eating. And a lot of times what will happen is you'll go around the table and half the people will be eating something that's better with white wine and half the people be eating something better with red wine. So then you turn to the sommelier and say, you know, maybe we need a bottle. If there are six or eight people at the table, maybe we need a bottle of each. There's a lot of options yeah. here on how to, how to approach this. But the first thing is to have a sort of general plan that says, what are we eating? Then we can go on from there. Yeah. And, you know, th- those are there's there's two questions in there. You're right. One of them is what, how do you deal with, you, you know, your the your, list you, you, well, and the other uh, one is the family. family. Right. Right. You know, and the list is is in some ways a little <laughs> it's the easier of the two. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I'm going to start with the family. My my thought with the family is and we, we've talked about this now and then about when you've you know, somebody puts you in charge of the wine list and you don't really know one, what you're doing, or two, what they want what you to they do. What they want. Here's always the first answer. If, if they've got a big wine list, they got somebody on the floor that's a psalm or a um, or the wine person, and ask them to come and help. Help. Yes. So so now always you good now at, yes. you look you don't you don't look like you're ego driven. If so now we're, we're in relations to the family, right? And then as you talk to the, the psalm, you say to him or her, you know, this is my girlfriend's dad and her mom, and I really want them to get something that they like. What do you guys like? Now you turn the family, you get you, you know, you good. get them Ask engaged. People what they like. So, so you've so got them good. engaged, yes. you know, and yep. then and then you put it all in that sommelier's responsibility. And you know, and you, that way you are sort of taking yourself out of the criticism, but you also are being considerate. Well, I'm I'm gonna add one more flavor over the top of this, one more layer over this. I like I hope it's caramel. I love I, caramel. <laughs> it's it's a mineral. Oh. It's minerality. <laughs> Mineral, yes. Um, and, and I like your idea of asking people what they like to drink because obviously that's one of the things you want to keep in mind. But the one thing I really like here and, – and remember that Gary, he's in Healdsburg. This is wine yeah, country. Yeah, yeah. And particularly if his family is – or his girlfriend's family is from outside the area. Which it sounds like from the nature of that question. Sounds like yeah, they are. Yeah. So one of the things he's going to be looking at is if somebody else is paying, I have a general rule, which is if somebody else is paying – 
I generally pick from the bottom third of the price category. Oh, see, this is where you and I differ. I, I, yeah, you go high. I just no. I go bottom third of the price every, category. Take them for everything I can, and we'll see what happens. <laughs> but the other thing is, I want to look for a wine. It doesn't matter what the wine tastes like. First of all, I'm going to assume he's in a restaurant in Healdsburg. There are not going to be bad wines on the list. That's true. I mean, the wines are all going to be pretty good. I'm going to pick a wine about which I can tell a story. This wine comes from right around the corner. Right. This wine comes from a town out by the coast. All I'm looking for is some tiny little story that I can tell about the wine, so I will tell the rest of the table, here's a little connection between me, the wine, the place, the dinner, and that'll make it all good. Yeah, and Gary, that's the other thing, too. If they, Especially if we have that right and they're visiting. Yeah. So they do want a wine from your area, and, it, and all you really sort of need to do is then pick a wine from a place in that region that that's you might right. know something about. That's what, right. Whatever it is, if it's Chalk Hill or Alexander Valley, whatever. Russian you, River. You just happen to wander by there. You had a really nice time swimming, whatever. All you need to say is, we. this is a wine that comes from the river where I first fell in love with your daughter. And trust me, whatever wine you order with that story, you'll be golden. Yes. And if her dad says, what was she wearing? Uh, she was had a pair of jeans and a very nice T-shirt. They just, you guys were not swimming. <laughs> um, all right. And then, you know, I don't know if that's a lot of help. We need to. We seriously need to do a whole show on, on how on, to manage uh, wine in a restaurant. Yes, what do. to do. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But really, the first answer is always, if you can, ask for help. Ask for help from the guests, from yeah. the sommelier, both. Yep. Yes, just not for either Paul or I. <laughs> <laughs> Our next question comes from Jordan Sheffield in Concord. My boyfriend is terrified. <laughs> I like this. My boyfriend is terrified of the wine sommeliers. I gather these together. By the way, as you know, I sometimes <laughs> you know, I, I try to keep these. I'm thinking the sommelier industry in yeah. America needs to be pulling its hair out. Right I'm now. sorry, folks. We we as I, I need to even before I start to answer this question, need to say that Paul and I have great respect for the working psalms out there. My boyfriend is terrified of the wine sommelier. It's kind of fun to watch him freak out. <laughs> but what should I tell him about what he should do besides chill? First well, that's thing the he first should, thing is chill. Chill. And the first thing he should remember is that the sommelier is there to make sure he – we don't hear the boyfriend's name, do we? That, that the, the sommelier is there to make sure the boyfriend has a really nice time at dinner. Yes. That's what he's there for. Yes. So the boyfriend needs to say, here's what would make a really nice dinner for me. Can you suggest a wine that would – Bing, bing, bing. And then he's good to go. Go with these foods, meet this price point. Um, remind me of my mother's aunt in Pittsburgh. I don't care what he says, but he needs to give the sommelier some direction and tell the sommelier, try to make me happy. It's the sommelier's job. Yeah. Yeah. I, I And it's... Yeah, chill is pretty a pretty good place to start. Although I have to say, uh, Jordan, if you're enjoying watching him freak out, I say, <laughs> why I say, stop? Go with the show. That's Remember, what I, I do say. what you like. Yeah. If you like this, go for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. uh, we have one more. This is Leonard from Leonard Evans in Lodi. We've actually talked about this subject a lot lately. Um, it seems to be coming up. Can people add sugar to wine? Leonard asks. Well. In California, the simple answer is no. Um, it, there are a couple states where they can, like New York and Oregon and Washington, but the, but the answer is no that they can't. This brings to mind my rule about where adding sugar to wine is legal, which is where it is sometimes necessary, it's legal. And where it is almost never necessary, like California, it's not legal. 
Yeah, so, it's not. Isn't that how it works? And, uh, and, it's pretty and, much and, how it works. And, and, and adding acid works the other way. Exactly right. right. Exactly right. right. So, so in California. France, for example, it's still kind of legal to add sugar to wine, particularly in vintages where it's cold and rainy and the grapes don't get ripe. Right. Uh, but you can never add acid in France. Uh, and flip-flop in California, it's legal to add acid because we often get grapes that are quite warm and perhaps not as fresh as they could be. But we never add sugar because our grapes always get ripe. And it's pretty much the way the laws read. Um, the important thing to remember here is that the sugar that you add to these wines is added not after the wines have fermented, but before right. the yeast takes over. Which so then all that raises sugar, the alcohol level and gives it a body. Right. And that that sort of thing, all that right. sugar gets eaten by the yeast and turned into alcohol. It's not what makes sweet wine sweet is adding sugar to it. Yeah. And and having said that, too, uh, you can add uh, sugar to it if you need it to in the form of a grape concentrate um, in California. That is legal. Right. It's a great product. We could talk about the politics of it because it's a great product that the grape industry then still is able to sell you grape. It's really a minor thing that has something to do with the regulation, but not, uh, but not a big deal. Um, no. Okay, that is uh, that's it for questions. And uh, and when we come back in the second half of the show, we're going to have uh, some horrible wine writing, and we will have uh, all of our other fun stuff, and of course more questions. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. We'll be right back. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. I can't but help but dance when I hear that music. You know, I'm sorry that our listeners cannot see you doing your oh, famous chair I am, dance I am, to that music. I am a charmer with that chair. Well, actually, it's <laughs> almost as good as my pole dance. I <laughs> don't want to know. <laughs> All right. It is time for really horrible wine writing. That's what that music means, and that's what my dancing means. Paul, what do you bring in? Well, I have two examples of really horrible wine writing, and I'm just going to challenge you and our listeners to see if they can tell me what these two examples have in common, okay? All right. Here's the first one. This has a really nice graphite frame that dries the core of fig, plum, and boysenberry fruit authoritatively. With dense ganache, espresso, and tar on the finish, the grip is keeping things tight now, but this should meld in the cellar as the underlying feel is energetic. Ooh. Okay, so that's one. Here's number two. All right. Aromas of cassis, licorice, vanilla, and black pepper, supple and sweet, but serious with a slightly medicinal edge to the flavors of cassis, tobacco, cedar, and wood smoke. The dense, persistent finish features creamy tannins. All right, so now I'm just listening to these. I'm thinking the cassis shows up a couple of times. The second one, I would guess, is a Cabernet. The first, I'm listening. I'm thinking uh, you get the fig, plum, boysenberry. It's dark. It's dense. Probably like a petite Syrah would be my guess. Well, um, there are a couple of things I like about these descriptions. Um, I like besides the overwroughtness. I like the graphite frame, which makes me think very much of a bicycle. I was thinking of a golf club. A golf club, yeah. good. Yeah, um, it's the same wine. <laughs> of course, it's the same wine written by two completely different people. And I love the goofy words in it. The the boysenberry fruit uh, drives the fruit authoritatively. authoritatively. That's a phrase that wine. I see wine writers use. I can uh, see yes. why you thought and of confidence. golf clubs. It's a, a graphite frame, and yes. it's driving the core. That's what I was thinking. The fig. I was seeing the fig. What do you figure? Like two hundred and forty yards. I think I like smacked that, that thing two eighty. Yeah, that, was, that fig was going away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He also liked. I like dense ganache. Okay, so there's so yeah. many things wrong with that. First. <laughs> Okay, first, ganache is a frosting. It's a substance. It's not a flavor. 
Right. Second, because it's a frosting, there's no other way that ganache would be than dense. Right. But ganache what? And so this is it's like saying the the flavor of dense thickness. Dense thickness. Yes. Well, people have said that about us, right? <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> dense and thick, yes. Yeah. I also like supple and sweet but serious. Yes, yes, serious. Thank goodness it's yeah. serious. Same yeah. wine, by yeah. the way, and oh, it is a lordy. Cabernet. Lordy, lordy, lordy. Okay, so what do you got? There's a couple things wrong with this, but this is the uh, uh, one of my least favorite. Was the wine critic quoting another critic, basically, instead of making his or her own judgment. Okay. And, and it is the magazine said... After an attack that is an intense blast of round, ripe, potent red fruit, it glides along, offering a power-packed, alluring mix of dense, dark blackberry, melted black, licorice, grippy, loamy, earth, and traction-inducing tannins. Bam. Okay, well, the bam was me, but nonetheless, uh, 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 it should have been there. I just How did it glide along to traction-inducing tannins? Yeah, after it It sounds like it, a car wreck. It attacked. It's somewhere Somewhere you're going from the, op, the round, potent, gliding... And then suddenly you're you're in a well, car wreck and was, you need traction. It was back and forth. It was tacking. It was intense. It was like oh, I think it was. Uh, yeah. And then it glides. And then it's back. And it's ooh. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that is uh, that's what we call not good. Plus, I really have no idea what the wine would taste like, which is is all, always well. A it would clearly take taste like an attack of intense blah. Yes. Blah, all blah, that blah, thing. Yeah. Yes. With dense ganache. With dense ganache. Yes. You are listening to Ball Talk with Rick and Paul. We are coming right back in just a moment, and we will have some history for you. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. I love those guys. They are so good and so nice for them to come in here on the studio in the middle of the day. That's on us. That's yeah, right. They should, they should, you know, that's good. Thanks. See you next week. Bye. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That is time for yeah, our historic history moment for this week. Paul, what do you have? The first officially designated wine region of the world with an actual outline of it where you could make the wine inside the region and you couldn't make it anywhere else. And it's from a place that most Americans would not even recognize as a wine region. It's Tokai in Hungary in the early 1700s. They said the wines coming from this region are different. They have a certain character and personality to them. And so let's delineate this area and say only wines from this region can be called Tokai. Wow. Well, that's very nice. I'm guessing it was minerality. Yeah. I think that's what it was that did it. Absolutely. <laughs> well, mine's a little bit about, about the wine trade or, or the trade in wine, I should say. And, and, and it goes back a ways. It goes back to 800 B.C. Okay. In back, Homer wrote about it. Homer. Yeah. Did it, he did he like donuts even back then? Yes. Yes. Homer liked donuts. That's okay, Homer. Good. Right. He was he's 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 a, he's a perennial. <laughs> um, and it, it spread around the Mediterranean really around 750 BC, and you know, that was international trade was the Mediterranean. Things like war and colonization and. Little things like the spread of coins and the standardization of measurements actually uh -huh. allowed for the trade to um, to grow. Uh, another thing that mattered actually a lot was uh, they got better at fighting pirates, so that helps. Do uh, do they did they talk like pirates? Do, are, they is did there, not. Pirates, do we know how ancient the, pirates talk? Yes, it was a different pirate talk language. We on on talk like a pirate day. We're going to do that show, <laughs> no. <laughs> but not oh, one of us not may today. do that show. The not other today. one won't. Um, and uh, here's the other thing that I kind of liked about it was that um, 
the uh, one of the things, of course, that that in this international trade, one of the number one prized things was wine. Yes. Um, but uh, what I liked was how the trade worked, which was that um, the loans to the traders to pay for their cargoes did not have to be repaid if the ship didn't make it to port. Wow. Yeah. So apparently if something nefarious happened to your ship, you would— uh, You were lo- scot-free, as yeah, it were. Yeah, and I don't know how they know this, but apparently the lending rate was anything between 125 to 30%, and the ship hmm. was often collateral. Wow. All right. Sounds like okay. a tough business. Yeah. You're listening to Ball Talk with Rick and Paul. When we come back, we'll have more questions from listeners. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. We are going back to our listener questions. We uh, we think we can help them out. Well, we probably can't, but we're going to take it a while. Give, give it a shot. If you'd like to be one of those folks that we really don't help out... You can go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. You can also find us on iTunes, remember, and subscribe for free with just a click. Our question comes from Vincent Snow in Fort Bragg, and he says, it's a tough question. I did some research on this, and there's not a clear answer, but he says, which is worse for your teeth, red or white? And can you do anything to protect them? And that's actually a really good question. Yes, and there, the first part is I don't know what's worse for your teeth, but I know what looks worse. For well, your teeth. yes, and actually, the general the general answer is not what looks worse. That's right. Yeah, because red wines don't actually have as much acid as right. white wines. So that's the answer, Vincent. Is that it's the acid in the wine that is generally harder on you. Yes, and but it's the reds that stick. And yes, and what your wife will be very unhappy to know is the highest acid wines on the planet sparklings. are sparkling wines. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, um, it's true. There are a couple of things as, as we judge wine competitions. There are a couple of things we do. One of them is drink a lot of water mm-hmm. and rinse your mouth regularly with the water. But after a while, it doesn't matter. And then the other thing is um, the temptation when you've been drinking a lot of red wine, particularly if you're judging a competition where you might taste 40 Cabernets in the space of a couple of hours, you're spitting them all out, but your teeth are black. Sure. The temptation is to race back to the hotel and brush your teeth. Wrong move. Bad idea. Yeah. And here's why, is because you're basically brushing in that acidity is is now really rubbing against the tartar in your wine. Yeah. I mean, in your wine. Mouth. The enamel in your, on your glass. Easy You're, for you to say, Rick. <laughs> uh, you know what it is? I have not had enough wine. Actually, there are a handful of things that you can't do. So one of them is what Paul said, is don't brush your teeth right after. Right. You know, just keep rinsing your mouth out. Give it a right. try. Um, eat, eat something in there. Um, yes. Another thing that you can do, there are these those... Uh, Enamel and uh, adding to enamel boosting toothpastes. Toothpaste and mouthwashes. And mouthwashes. And I have to say, you know, I started using one a couple of years ago. And I I finally started brushing my teeth, you know. (laughs) People insisted. (laughs) Now, I started using the enamel enamel boosting toothpaste. And immediately what I saw was that, one, my teeth got stained less from things like coffee. And when I went to my dentist, they were going, gee, your teeth look good. And I said, Mm -hmm. well, thank you very much. I also found that, you know, in those... uh, uh, red tooth, red teeth inducing sessions, it was not, they were not as bad. Right. So they were, yep. the enamel was building back. So that's the thing. And is, but use all those treatments and your dentist yep. can also do help you out with that. Although it should be pointed out that what we are talking about in this case is really people who are literally rinsing their mouth out 
a hundred times yeah. a day with wine when you're judging a competition. Drinking two or three glasses of wine with dinner, you probably aren't exposed. Or like me, a couple hundred. You aren't coming anywhere close to that kind of uh, exposure, yeah. so it's a little different. So this is probably really not an issue, but if there is a delineating thing, it is the acidity, and so it's going to probably be worse than the white. This next one comes from another one of our regular listeners from our Fresno Enclave. Cool. It's from Katie cool. Madden in Fresno. I like how she asks this question. I'm not sure you are the guys to ask because I don't hear a lot of it, but what does finesse mean? <laughs> well, yeah, you, you got it. I don't know, you, Katie. What do you think it means? You got us there for sure. For sure. I'm not, that is, I've been accused of many things. Finesse has never been one of them. <laughs> yes. Oh. Well, I, you know, I, got, I have to put in a, a kind word for an absolutely beautiful bottle of wine that my wife and I had the other night. It was a Brunello de Montalcino from Bamfi, one of their top wines from Tuscany. And where finesse comes into it is, as we looked at the wine, it was beautiful, dark, rich, intense. It had beautiful aromatics. We put it in our mouth. It was full of flavor. But at the end, rather than saying, wow, what a big wine, rather than saying, woof, that's powerful, the overwhelming sensation was, gosh, what a very elegant, stylish wine. It had finesse. And it's a little, to me, finesse, when you think about a wine, is a little bit like looking at really beautifully finished furniture as opposed to rustic furniture. I like them both. I got a cabin. I want rustic furniture. But one of those really beautiful polished pieces of wood that you get in a piece of furniture, when you taste a wine and you feel that that elegance, that style, the, the feel in your mouth is absolutely both concentrated and yet delicate, powerful and yet elegant. That's finesse. That's how people had described me, Katie. I don't know what you're talking about. I agree with all of that. And I would add one thing that from just in my mind how it works. And, and the truth of it is, it is, it's kind of a you know it when you taste it or see it, and it's really your own judgment as well. But I think that there's nothing stands out. You know, I, I say that there's no edges to the wine. And and there are plenty of really good wines where things stand out. You get this punch of fruit. You get this, you know, this sort of deep earthiness on the back end. or you get, And wine that's got finesse, It's it, everything is coalesced in the way of, you know, some of those a really gentle sauce that where the, you get a lot of flavors in the sauce, but you really doesn't don't get any one single one. And it's a little difficult because because frankly, it shouldn't be confused with smooth. Yes, it is definitely not to because be confused. Smooth can a be kind of a different syrupy, interpretation, right? And right. syrupy means that it kind of stands out for being that way. And finesse is, and it doesn't mean mediocre. It doesn't mean nothing stands out because there's nothing good. It means everything is good, and yet it's beautifully made. You know, you hear people say seamless. And I always think that's a little bit awkward with wine. Where are the seams in a wine, anyway? They're usually right along the edge of the, where the front of the pant leg and the back of the pant leg <laughs> meet. Right. There's, a, there's a side seam. But it's funny. I, I actually uh, heard of a conversation about this between a professor at UC Davis and a professor in from Bordeaux. And the professor from UC Davis in California— This, this sounds like a bar joke. And he was saying, I don't believe that finesse is something and elegance is something. I don't believe those are things that you can use to describe wine because we have no perfect descriptor. And the Bordelais professor said, oh, but you know it when you taste it. Yeah. Well, that's—you know, I, I go back to that a lot, and I hate to say that, um, uh, is that— you know it when you taste it is a is is too often the answer, but it's a real answer. You know that, and it is everybody's slightly different definition. Although, darn it, you know, Paul, we need to come up with a joke. 
professor from Bordeaux and a professor from UC Davis walked into the bar. <laughs> Bartender said, "Hey guys, why the long face?" <laughs> That's <laughs> right. No, yeah, yeah, no, something like. Yeah, we're gonna, okay. we're gonna, we're so gonna work on. Send the, us your best answer to that. One question. of the yes, yeah, so what we do is we want we send in your worst best bar joke and, um, <laughs> and we'll deal with it. Right. This one is from Angela Fisher in Sacramento. I want to send my husband to a wine class. He loves the stuff and won't shut up about wine, but I'm pretty sure he has no clue half the time. Hey, he sounds like us. <laughs> he should join our show. <laughs> How do I find him a good class, and can they teach him about wine and not to lecture so much? Um, they well, you know, actually, they will. Uh, maybe. maybe. I think they well, can answer yeah. the first one a lot yeah. easier than they can answer the second one. Yeah. So, Angela, first tell him not to lecture so much. I tell him that Rick and Paul said don't, don't lecture so much. Just because we do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> don't do as we do. Do as well, we say. So, well, actually, we don't lecture very much. We kind of interrupt each other all the time to make it impossible for us to lecture. I was lecture. going to lecture you about interrupting. <laughs> <laughs> um, good classes on wine. Now, you're in Sacramento. I will tell you that there is a spectacular curriculum of classes at uh, Napa Valley College. Yes. Well, I happen to know one of the people teaching. I teach one of those classes. But I mean, it, literally, some of the best winemakers in the Napa Valley teach wine appreciation classes at Napa Valley. It's a spectacular program. Um, I believe you have a program up at American River College that offers some wine appreciation classes uh, there. Uh, now, I used to be one of Sierra College, and they unfortunately ended that class at Sierra. Right, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, you, may, you may need to do it on a Napa. You know, and I, I can also uh, it thoroughly endorse the Culinary Institute of America's uh, Wine program. They have yes. they have a, both a mastering wine uh, program that's a, and and programs aimed at professionals, but also they have programs that are aimed for yes. uh, consumers. A little and, further drive. Also, very good program. Yes. I yeah. also teach there, so I yeah. have to. Yeah, yeah, and um, or you can come to one of my wine classes in Sacramento. Well, the but, other uh, thing is, I think you'll find that if you were to if you were to do a little search, there are a lot of local wineries that, in one way or another, I know that. For example, I know that the Lodi. Wine Education Center down there at times has classes or at least organized tastings, which is as close to a class as you can get where they explain the wines and talk. So there are lots of different options for yeah, you. Yeah, and uh, this is not a plug for the wineries that I work for, but I know that wineries, a lot of a number of wineries uh, in the past, and I've got one or two on the hook still, that, um, that bring me in to do just wine 101 classes. I'm sure that there are many, many wineries in our region. I know a bunch that do wine 101. When are you going to... It does not have to be me. I'm when saying. are you going to get to wine 102? Yeah, right? we don't do wine 102. We... Um, <laughs> We think that's far too complicated. Um, so, but in terms of teaching him not to lecture, oh boy, yeah, that's the hard part because yeah. clearly this is something he likes to do. I don't want to, yeah, yeah. Why uh, spoil his fun? Well, well, here's you. You tell him um, what John Adams told Thomas Jefferson, which was, "You're becoming a bore." <laughs> I thought you'd buy him a karaoke machine yeah. and tell him to knock himself out. Yeah, that's what he told him. Um, and I think that's uh, tell him, hey, say, I just want you to, uh, you know, darling, I love you. But in, <laughs> let me just read you a quote from John Adams. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> yes. Lovely. Right. We have one more. This is from Amber Knapp in Burlingame. Okay. I'm going wine tasting with some friends in a couple weeks, and it's making me kind of nervous. What do I need to know before I go? Oh, Amber. Amber. That's a great question because Re yeah. because it is a question that everybody really ought to ask. Every time you walk into a tasting room, if you spend a little time in a tasting room, you will notice these people come in. They don't know what they're supposed to do. They're nervous. The tasting room staff often isn't very good at picking these people up and sort of hand-carrying them through the process. So 
First of all, most wineries will give you some sort of a chart or a guide to say, here are a couple of different options. The first thing you do is walk in and ask, how does this work? Yes. Yeah. Well, now you're, you're where I was going to go, which is that you don't have to know anything. Just You don't ask. have to know anything. Just they ask. will help you through it. Yes. But the other thing that you do need to know, Amber, is if you're going wine tasting with your friends, somebody needs to spit, somebody needs to not swallow, somebody needs to be the driver. Right. That's actually a pretty key point there. And beyond that point, it sounds like what you're worried about is is sort of doing the wrong thing or embarrassing yourself, and you really do not need to worry about that. that if, is you, if you'd thing. like to completely forget about those fears, go into the first winery and say, I'm the designated driver. I won't be drinking. Watch what everybody else in that room does. At the second winery, you will say, there's no way I'm going to be any yeah. stupider yeah. than the rest yeah. of yeah. the people. That's true. <laughs> you know, uh, Including we, the people behind the bar. Yeah. I've, I've brought this up once before um, when my first book came out. Uh, you know, it's different from working behind a bar is, is just sitting and watching. When my first book came out, we did a, uh, a signing. The lovely folks at Silverado Vineyards in Napa Valley had a sit. Yes. So, so we did a book signing sitting in the tasting room all day long, and yep. uh, and it was a very fun thing to do. Yep. Um, but what was, was amazing was how confused and nervous and, you know, there was like the cool guys came in with a sweater tied over their shoulder, and, 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 they, but, and they couldn't just go to the bar and say, so what do you... What do you point? They couldn't just go to the bar. Right. They had to. They had to like they picked up bottles and looked at them as if they were looking for something important. But you knew that they put it down right they away. They were stalling they were for just, time. They were trying to look like they belong there. And and right. so this is the thing: you don't need to perform. Right. You are walking into a place where they would like you to like them. That's right. You don't have they to get them to perform. To, right. They. You don't have to get them to like you. It is. You know. It is. We've we've done this. Um, we talked we talk to the lovely Emma Swain, uh, who is at telling, Saint Supri. At Saint Supri does and, a very good job there. And she was telling us that that's one of the things that they worry about, is they worry about people worrying about your worry. They basically worry about you, Amber. They don't want you to have to worry. Right. They don't want you to feel right. nervous. They want you to feel like you can walk in and know nothing. That's right. Yeah, but Which when, is why we do such a— It's, it's how we survive. It's, it's yes. a beautiful thing. <laughs> yes. um, but if there's anything— if there's any advice in the wine world, really, it is um, it's that asking questions is is always sort of your your go to way. It's always the smart thing to do. Yes, yes. Ask questions. Yes, although you may have done it the one thing wrong, which is that you asked a question of us. Us. Yeah. So, but beyond that, <laughs> beyond that, asking questions is a is, good thing. Is exactly the answer. All right. Well, when we come back, we will have a food and wine pairing. Uh, that is it for the mailbag at the moment. Remember, you can ask us a question, and we will try to be nice, and you don't need to know anything when you do. And if you go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. And don't forget, look for us on iTunes, and you can subscribe for free with just a click. We will be right back. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and we are about to give you a food pairing idea. Uh, we picked one because, frankly, I was thinking about this just the other evening. This is how you solve your problems, right? You you, you decide you're going to cook something for dinner, then you come in and say, Paul, what wine would you serve with this? That's exactly it. Yes. <laughs> and then you know, and then I say something different to look like I was actually thinking. And then when you serve it to your wife and I, she says, this is horrible together, you say, you know, I told Paul it wouldn't work, yeah, but he no. insisted. When I serve it to my wife, I open a sparkling and <laughs> it doesn't really matter which kind and she's happy. Yeah. Right. Well, this is actually, um, this is a dish that I like and then I was, I'm planning to make in the next evening. And so I thought this is, you know, but this is not the easiest pairing because... 
um, it's slightly different. So this it's a, a salmon with a citrus sauce. Now when I do it, I actually slice some limes and some lemons. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Drop in some capers, a okay. little green onion Ooh, on the top. Capers. Yeah, yeah, okay. Capers so you got a little so sourness. A little as well bit as sour and briny, and yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, but it's not ceviche, so it's not. No, 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 okay. not in that direction. It okay. is a. It's, it's cooked. A, I'm gonna actually bake it. You're gonna bake it. Yeah, but I lightly bake it under. You know, mm-hmm. and think. By the way, my hint for for baking salmon, same thing as grilling salmon, is always. Take it out before you think it's done. It will keep cooking, and you don't want to overcook salmon. Right. And frankly, it's one of the fishes that you can undercook and get away with just fine. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So um, I, I kind of I know what I would do, but what would you do? Well, I know what I would do if I'm at your house. Besides the sparkling. Well, because, yeah, your wife wants to drink sparkling wine, and sparkling yeah. wine is really good with this. Yes, yes, yes. Um, the other thing I'd look at is a Mediterranean white. Ooh, well, see, I'm I'm sort of with you, but my but go ahead because I'm so just... I'm looking at you know you can look at Vino Verde from Portugal, mm-hmm. you can look at Albarino from that was Spain, mine, although it's actually an Atlantic Mediterranean. But you wine. can yes. go down to uh, Sicily and look at things like Inzolia and Catarata that they grow in Sicily. The, all of these wines. The minute I hear capers, I start thinking about yeah. dry white yeah, wines. Yeah. Although the capers won't drive it, the citrus will. But nonetheless, it's still in the yeah. same. Yeah, yeah. And and dry white wines. I was thinking of Albarino all the way actually. Um, and that's so. This is the thing with in, fish and citrus sauce. Be a good uh, name for a racehorse, wouldn't it? Albarino? Albarino all the way. Oh yeah, it would. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you can sit there. Albarino all the way, all the way. Albarino all the way. Uh, the uh, fish and and citrus sauces are not uncommon. Right. And and so this is right. You know, you're going to get a lot of these in your life, no doubt. Um, and those are the wines. Uh, you know, really dry white. But a huge spectrum to choose from. Yes. Because yes. almost any dry white wine. Quite dry yeah. will work beautifully with these. Yeah, and I think I think a, a not too grassy Sauvignon Blanc would be yep. very good yeah. as well. Well, yeah. for example, when Mark was here from uh, from Amador County with yeah. the, his Semillon, the yeah, Semillon would be nice. Dry Semillon, yeah, yeah, yeah. lots yeah. of things. Yeah. So I, uh, yeah, all right. Um, all right, well, I'm really hungry, and so we're going to have to close the show and move on because That's right. I just— We have I, to cook salmon. you got to pull that salmon out. you got to pull gotta, that salmon out yeah, of I'm the Yeah, I'm going to go out to the American River behind the— uh, behind going to catch it today? I, I'm going to look for it. Excellent. So thank you to uh, Skoda Family winemaker Mark McKenna for coming in and giving us grief. Um, and thank you even more <laughs> to our ever-patient engineer, Matt Bassini. Thanks, and to, Matt. And to Capital Public Radio for the studio use. If you'd like to ask us a question, go to rickandpaulwine.com. And if you learned anything today, we hope it's this. Sure, it's easy to disagree with us, but it's also fun. I'm Rick Cushman. <laughs> I'm Paul Wagner. Remember, the best wines you drink with friends. Or with us. Especially us. Especially us.